The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Our topic today is um, physician health and improving the health and well-being of America's healthcare workforce. While we will be talking mostly about physicians, uh, what we're talking about applies to um, other healthcare providers as well, such as dentists, nurses, um, nurse practitioners, etc. And um, our guest today is Dr. Matthew Goldenberg, who is an expert in the evaluation and treatment of mental health disorders and is an is an addiction specialist in Santa Monica, California. He is double board certified in psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. Dr. Goldenberg is the founder of Professionals Health Solutions, which provides individualized and evidence-based evaluations, treatment, monitoring, and education that is geared towards assisting motivated adults obtain and maintain long-term recovery from mental health conditions and addictions. Um, Welcome to One Hour at a Time, Dr. Goldenberg. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Um, so, you know, this is a pretty uh, timely topic right now when we're talking about um, improving the health and well-being of America's healthcare workforce. We're having significant challenges with an aging workforce. Um, there are less folks, I know, um, in the Northeast, you know, finding a psychiatrist is very difficult because people aren't going to psychiatry. So there's just a lot of challenges in general, um, in addition to what the physician is experiencing internally as well. So can you speak a little bit about what our current challenges are? Yeah, no, I definitely think that there's a lot of challenges. I mean, there's a lot in the news about the Affordable Care Act and the shortages of physicians as well as this opioid epidemic. And so I think uh, you hit on some of it that in certain areas of the country, there's already a shortage of physicians and as uh, certain uh, mental health and, and physical health issues come to the forefront, it puts even more strain on the providers that are there. And so sometimes that you know, extra stress and, and extra demands on the workforce can present challenges that sometimes we don't even think about. You know, how is this actually impacting the healthcare providers themselves uh, if they're having to take extra call or deal with even sicker patients than they normally did? And so a lot of what I see in my practice is, is the result of that, is that the workforce has been overstrained trying to keep up with the demands, especially in more rural areas. And you oftentimes will have different complications because of that, whether it be burnout or substance abuse or depression. Um, but I think it's a multifactorial issue, and you touched on some of it, that in some areas that there's uh, you know, a shortage already of, of physicians and other healthcare providers. I mean, are less people applying to medical school, or have we lost um, space in medical schools? Why, are there, why is there a shortage? 
You know, I think that's a great question. When I've looked at the data, we have a, for physicians specifically, there's a match process every year where uh, most people who aren't in the healthcare field don't know about it, but what happens is you go to medical school and then you go through this process where you put in your top choices for residency and the programs that have residency programs where you get your specialty training. So if you want to become a pediatrician or a neurosurgeon, you have to get special training after medical school. There hasn't been a significant increase in the number of residency programs, but there has been an increase in the number of medical schools. So basically, we have more people being trained to become doctors, but we haven't yet developed more of the specialty training programs, especially in the more rural areas, because they tend to be in larger trauma hospitals or major medical centers. And so what we have is we just haven't kept up with the demand. And I think as um, more and more people are looking for healthcare providers in their areas. And as you said, as there's a more aging population and oftentimes people tend to retire uh, where they can afford to live, which may be not in metropolitan areas, but in more in rural areas, there just isn't the number of physicians we need. And so I think that the shortage isn't necessarily people not applying uh, because the medical schools are full and growing. Uh, it's that, that we haven't created the training programs in the specialties and in the areas that we need to keep up with the demand of and, and the needs of the American population. So how does this relate to well-being and um, health of our workforce? So I think it's really, and oftentimes it's supply and demand. And so what I see in a lot of my colleagues is that they don't have a, a strong work-life balance. We have patients, like I mentioned before, that are potentially sicker, especially if you work in the addiction field like I do. Uh, we see patients coming in who are uh, either uh, just coming, you know, either in severely intoxicated, oftentimes from opioids, um, or they've had a number of different um, unintentional overdoses. We see it in the news, and I think now um, people from all over America are experiencing what an opioid epidemic is, whether it be heroin or prescription pain medications. Um, and so our patients are sicker and require more from us uh, and oftentimes we just have less resources uh, to provide. And so I think that the workforce, the healthcare workforce is more stretched. Um, there's, there's more demands on the workforce because of EMRs, electronic medical records. And so, again, if you're in the general population, you may not know uh, what goes on behind the scenes, but healthcare providers are expected to document extensively. And some of this is for uh, the health insurance uh, benefits so that your insurance pays for it. But basically... Uh, in many healthcare settings, physicians and other healthcare providers will spend more time documenting on the medical record than they actually do with face-to-face -face care. And so most of the time, people go into medicine or into healthcare because they want to help people. And the reality is uh, they end up spending more time documenting and doing other kind of bureaucratic tasks than they do with patient care. And so I think it's a combination of, of in some cases, the health, there's a sicker population, uh, there's less um, I would say that there's more demands on the, on the workforce, and then oftentimes we're expected to do more with less because our time is stretched through uh, so thin. And so I think that that's a big piece of it is that the, the culture of, of healthcare has changed a lot in that uh, not as much time is spent face-to-face -face with our patients as it used to. Um, this question doesn't directly relate to healthcare, but it, it strikes me that over the last 30 years, um, the industry, whether it's physicians, nurses, dentists, ability to advocate and um, lobby for what is really um, good health care has diminished considerably. Um, you know, when I was trained like 40-some years ago, 
you know, doctors were very strong in what the doctors said when, and no one questioned it. And now you call for prior authorization, and you've got who knows on the other end of the phone, not a physician, determining per, a person's access to care and, and need for care. So um, that must be exceeding. I know it's frustrating for me as a nurse. I can't imagine what it's like to, as a physician to be questioned continually on your judgment and recommendations. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that there's a, an incredible, I think, pressure from the insurance companies who kind of serve as an intermediary between the physician or other healthcare professional and the patient, whether it becomes, comes down to the reimbursement for the office visit or for the patient to get reimbursed for the medications that are prescribed to the pharmacy. And there is another decision maker in the room. We oftentimes don't see them, but when the prior authorization, I think, is a good example and patients may not know how this works, but I might recommend medication A to my patient. It may be the best medication. It may not even be that expensive, but the insurance company says, well, I need additional documentation from the doctor as an explanation why the patient should get this benefit. And so what ends up happening is either over the phone or um, through an electronic means, the doctor has to provide additional information for the insurance company to justify why they would uh, uh, prescribe or dispense medication A and not medication B, C, or D, which may be less expensive, um, but um, might not be the most ideal medication for the patient. So if there's anyone out there who's not aware of this process, you can most likely go on YouTube and Google how a frustrating prior authorization process. There's some doctors who've put some of these phone calls. It can take 45 minutes of answering the same questions over and over and over again. And, you know, I, I hate to be cynical or skeptical, but sometimes I feel like these additional barriers are put in place uh, to make it just so that people, either whether it be the physician or the other healthcare professionals or the patient, will just give up and choose the less expensive means or just not get the medication at all. But yeah, those barriers are really frustrating and I think weigh on the healthcare provider workforce because not only is it additional work, but it does seem like somebody is second-guessing your judgment. And oftentimes that person who's asking those questions or you're talking to isn't another healthcare professional. They're just a person sitting at a keyboard typing in the answers. And that's where, again, I feel like it's not all about, that's not about patient care. It's more about a bureaucratic process uh, that's been put in place to make it more difficult for something to be prescribed. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that, but it, it seems that way from, you know, being on our side of, of being a prescriber and trying to help our patients. Um, back in the day, the cultural norm, at least um, where I was in training, and um, was that alcohol use was encouraged. Um, people, I mean, back then, people were smoking in the hospitals, nurses uh-huh. smoked in the nurses' room. But the whole idea that, you know, you have a tough shift and you go out for a couple drinks was very much the norm. And um, has that continued? I mean, what is the culture within people in residency and training? What do they learn about um, substance use? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think our culture's changed a lot. I wasn't practicing back then, but one of my favorite shows of, of late has been Mad Men. And I think just seeing that how the culture of you know, having an afternoon cocktail, and certainly in the healthcare field, it was after the shift, um, but as a way to, to blow off steam. I think that's changed a lot, at least in medical school and in residency, in my experience and from when I talk to my colleagues. It does seem like that was a way to reward ourselves, you know, after a really difficult test or after we get through a really difficult rotation or training, part of our training, you would go out with friends and blow off some steam. But I think as you come into your you know, full-time career, we call it as an attending physician where you're actually working and uh, you have your own practice, 
there's been more of an emphasis, emphasis over the last decade on, on wellness and work-life balance. And so they're promoting mindfulness and meditation, um, yoga, and things like that that we, we know are more evidence-based to, to have a work-life, you know, to, to promote resiliency and a work-life balance. But I do think that there is still a, you know, a cultural norm in our society that it is, you know, that is one way to either reward yourself or to cope with things is to go out and have a bunch of drinks with friends and just blow off steam um, and so I, I don't think that it's something that's specific to the healthcare field. You know, it sounds like maybe more, it sounds like during your training, that was maybe more of a, uh, cultural norm, but I'm sure in some circles it still is. I think today there is more of an understanding that, that, that does not help things. You know, you, the alcohol is, tends to be a depressant and, um, you know, d- does not help your long-term health or well-being. So I think that there's been a shift since then to now. And I think that that's good. I think it's important that, uh, we understand, you know, the more holistic and more uh, quality of life promoting things that people can do uh, to restore work-life balance. So are you seeing a decrease in the rate of substance misuse and abuse among physicians? So I think the data out there shows it's been pretty steady, that physicians actually have about the same rates of of drug and alcohol use as the general population. And um, it doesn't, I think the recent data has shown that that's probably hasn't changed much. Um, but I think that the, I would say the recreational use, and this would just be from my own, um, anecdotal, you know, experience and, and, and talking with patients and what their colleagues are doing. It does seem like there's been over the last couple of decades, less of the recreational people going out and drinking, uh, a few times per week with friends as opposed to, you know, the, the rates of substance abuse remains, however, and I guess we can talk about that later, you know, the, the numbers of, of people who, physicians specifically, who are impacted by drug and alcohol use. And we'll talk about that right after this commercial. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of return to peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. If you're busy, stressed, and can't ever seem to find the time to add in those new healthy habits, you need to check out Lisa Lutan's Busy, Stressed, and Food-Obsessed show. 
This program will help you discover easy ways to improve your health and happiness. Plus, you will pick up all sorts of tips on better eating, fitness, relationships, how to manage stress, and a lot more. You'll feel yourself becoming healthier just by tuning in. Listen live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about physician health, how to improve the health and well-being of America's health care workforce. And our guest is Dr. Matthew Goldenberg, who is continues to engage in research and medical education as a member of the medical staff and is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, and he also maintains a private practice in Santa Monica, California. What a beautiful place, Santa Monica. Um, before I went to break, we were talking a little bit about the pre- prevalence of addiction among physicians. And um, could could you kind of break that down for us in terms of what, you know, is it reflective of the general population, you know, um, males versus females? Is it the same? What, what does the data show? Yeah, those are great questions. And, you know, I think sometimes we get conflicting reports in the media. There was a consumer report's, uh, magazine article that came out, I think about a year ago, which was highlighting impaired physicians. And on the cover, there was a doctor in a white coat with a stethoscope holding a martini. And I think sometimes that can lead to, I think, unnecessary hysteria. And sometimes in, in, in the public, where you know, are all physicians impaired or what's going on? The evidence out there shows the data that we have from a no, uh, probably three or four decades worth of research shows that for at least physicians, the rates of substance abuse are about the same as the general population. So that's about 10 to 15% of, of individuals in our country have some sort of issue with drugs or alcohol, and that number's pretty consistent for physicians and other healthcare providers. There's data out there for nurses and psychologists um, and dentists, and all the numbers seem to be about the same. The difference is that physicians and the general population, the number one uh, substance of abuse, may not be surprising, is alcohol. And some of that is access and just cultural norms. We're exposed to it early on, and uh, you tend to be more likely to develop addictions to things you're exposed to. The difference between healthcare providers and the general public is the number two or the second most common. For healthcare providers, specifically specifically physicians, those are prescribed medications, um, medications you get at a pharmacy or you can get in in a physician's practice. For the general population, they tend to be illicit substances. So we do see when when doctors or dentists come in for treatment, uh, they don't tend to be addicted to things like heroin or um, uh, what else you want to say, methamphetamine or marijuana. They tend to be, like I mentioned before, more prescribed medication. So that's a big difference. Um, so in the gender, it's the same, the same prevalence among males and females as a general population? Yeah, I'd say overall it seems to be pretty similar between males to females. I think it, depending on the substance, men tend to have more 
um, alcohol abuse in some cases, but overall I would say that the data shows that it's pretty similar male to female. Um, probably a slight um, over-prevalence or, or higher numbers in males, but I don't think it's clinically significant in, in what we, we tend to see. Um, my assumption, it may be erroneous, is that anesthesiologists may have the higher rate of substance misuse than other specialties. Just yeah, on their and, yeah, and that's actually, um, you know, you're right on there. So I think one of the things that we look at, like I mentioned with alcohol, it's, it's access or exposure. So the, the rates of alcohol, you know, alcoholism in our country are higher um, because people are exposed to it. Um, and, and for anesthesiologists, they have access to IV opioids that other doctors wouldn't have. So I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I, I have no business being in an operating room prescribing or in, you know, utilizing IV opioids, so I don't have access to that kind of thing. Uh, but anesthesiologists do in their practice, and so um, IV opioids are um, basically pharmaceutical um, pain medications that are used during anesthesia, and uh, one of the illicit substances that's similar is heroin. So we know how addictive heroin is for the general population, while IV opioids are even more so. Uh, they're even higher potency or more powerful than heroin. And so you do see more IV opioid abuse and dependency in um, anesthesiologists than you do in other physicians just because they have access, it, access to it in their practice. But their rates aren't higher for other things. Like they don't have higher rates of alcoholism or other drug abuse, but specifically to IV opioids, anesthesiologists do have higher rates uh, than, the other, uh, than other physicians or other healthcare providers do. How is this addressed within uh, an OR or within a team? I mean, you know, physicians have have a reputation for kind of protecting each other. Um, what happens when someone notices that a colleague is impaired? Well, it's a great question. And there really has been historically kind of what we, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, put out or with the AMA back in the 60s, uh, the, an original look at, it was called Impair, uh, it was the Impaired Physician that came out in the, the 60s. It was the original look at physicians who had drug and alcohol problems, and they said there was a conspiracy of silence. And what they meant was that there does tend to be, um, and I think it happens in any field, it's not just for physicians, but your colleagues, uh, your staff, even spouses tend to protect the person who may have a drug or alcohol problem. Some of that may be biased because they see all of the good things that person does for their medical practice, for their community, uh, but then also there may be fears that if that person goes and lo- loses their career because of a, maybe having a problem with alcohol, um, that it could spiral and, and lots of people would lose their careers and lose their prestige and all of those things. Um, I think that's changed a lot. I think we've recognized in the field that there are good treatments, and, and one of the most important things is early evaluation. And so there's different layers of protection. There's people on the ground. So I think if you have a, doc, a doctor who's an anesthesiologist or surgeon or even works in the emergency room and they show up to their shift and they have alcohol in their breath or they, impa- they appear to be impaired, uh, they would be reported to a colleague or to a supervisor, and they would immediately or they should be immediately drug tested and, and evaluated to see if there is a problem. If they tested positive, then there's other steps that take place, and we can talk about those. Um, but I think that we've, as a, as a culture of medicine, have recognized that, like I mentioned previously, that the rates of substance abuse are the same as the general population, and so there are going to be physicians who struggle with substance abuse or mental health issues, and so the important piece is early detection and, and screening and then getting those physicians or those other healthcare providers into a treatment setting 
where they can get those issues addressed. Um, typically, if 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 I am a, an accountant or or um, you know I, I'm running a marketing firm and I get arrested for a DUI or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it may end up in the paper, but it really may may usually doesn't affect my ability to 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 work or practice my my profession. But when a physician gets arrested for DWI or um, they in, are in some way um, outed for having some type of substance misuse, that has a direct effect on their on their ability to provide for themselves and their family and to practice their profession. So is the stigma the same or is it different? Yeah, I think that the stigma is more so, I mean, I think there's a lot of stigma when it comes to mental health issues and substance abuse for anybody. Um, you know, NAMI is the national organization um, that is, is seeking to try to decrease that for, for everyone to be able to get access to quality mental health treatment. Patrick Kennedy is fighting for that, the former congressman. But I think for physicians and other healthcare providers, it's even more so because there's a lot of fear that a historical diagnosis, so if I had a drug or alcohol problem 30 years ago, I've never touched a drink of alcohol, never touched another substance in 30 years, that still if I applied for my medical license and somehow somebody found out that I did have a DUI or I did go to get treatment 20, 30 years ago, that that could continue to create problems today. And so I think that it's important, and that's one of the shifts that needs to be made, is that we're not looking at a historical diagnosis, we're looking at a current uh, state of functioning for somebody. And so um, sometimes stigma, I think, does continue to get in the way of, of somebody getting treatment. Um, but I think more and more as we're getting the evidence out there, and I appreciate the opportunity to join you on the radio show today, just even to talk about this and normalize it and help get the, both for the healthcare provider who might be listening and saying, hey, maybe treatment isn't, you know, going to ruin my career, or for the patient who, you know, is, is fearful or the, the political activist who's fearful that you could have a doctor who once got a DUI, you know, they should never practice again. Um, I think it's important for for that issue. And then the other piece of that is, uh, recognizing that there are things in place. So in most states, if a physician gets a DWI or another healthcare provider gets a DWI, that would go to the licensing board. And so that, that would become an issue for them. They may not be able to renew their license, uh, and that could create um, some sort of a, a career issue. But as physicians and other healthcare providers, we're in safety-sensitive roles. And so we do have obligations, just like pilots do, that the general public does not, because the, the public has literally their lives in our hands in many cases. And so I think the important piece is that the stigma decreases enough that people can get treatment, but that we also continue to provide the resources we need to, so that when somebody does reach out for help, they actually get the treatment that they deserve. Um, oftentimes it gets swept under the rug and people try not to, um, you know, let those, let, let their, I'd say the, the, the treatment sometimes, the fear of getting treatment gets in the way of getting treatment in many cases. And so that's one of the things I think with less stigma, we'll have less of that going forward. Um, do you think there's discrimination once somebody um, gets into recovery? Um, I, know, I know there are in other professions, I think, that, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes uh, couched in, in other terms, but um, sometimes, you know, you get branded as, oh, mm-hmm. you're an impaired professional, and that as you were talking earlier, whether it was 30 years ago or two months ago, um, there, there can be a subtle discrimination that can, people can experience. 
Yeah, I think that that can happen. You know, I think that sometimes people, the physicians I've worked with have sometimes had more fear that that would be the case than in actuality. You know, they worry about disclosing to, a, you know, a supervisor or a colleague, well, what would they think? And oftentimes, you either find that somebody else is in recovery and they're very welcoming to the fact that you finally got around to getting the help you need, or they're just understanding that, you know, you're, you're having ongoing drug testing, you have a workplace monitor. So as long as things today look okay, people are usually pretty receptive to the fact that you got help and now you're doing much better. But there are some cases where we've had physicians or in many cases been nurses because they're actually often employed by the hospital, whereas physicians may work for a physician group and be contracted. Um, so it's, it's sometimes easier for a, for a physician to get their credentialing back on track than a nurse who actually has to go to a hospital and, and seek employment in that way. And so they may not be able to find uh, a job in the first, second, third tries. And so it's important to keep looking for opportunities where there isn't as much stigma, um, where they're not holding that against you. But we have had unfortunate situations where people have had a lot of difficulty, especially if they're in, a, in an area where the, the health care is provided by um, organizations, like religious organizations, that, that really you know, negatively look, look at addiction treatment and things like that. So, you know, I think it's a case-by-case basis, but there certainly is discrimination in, in some cases, and it's really unfortunate because it doesn't do anything to help either the, the physician who's seeking treatment or the patients of the person uh, who are now, you know, who's now doing well and, and could be contributing to the medical community. And we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Is your health where you think it should be? If you're like most people, the answer is probably not. Where can you get the answers you need to get on the right track? The answers start on Occupy Health. Each week, host Dr. Susan Downs and her guest experts will answer your questions as well as prepare you for questions you'll want to ask your health provider. You'll want to plan for your optimal health with Occupy Health. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Sometimes it just seems that nobody understands. There's one individual who can help. If you're living with somebody who faces challenges such as autism, Asperger's, or other exceptional needs, you'll want to tune into Solutions and Strategies with Dr. Sean. Living the challenge. Together, we'll uncover a variety of solutions to the challenges faced by individuals, their families, and teachers. Listen live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We're talking about physician health today and improving the health and well-being of America's healthcare workforce with Dr. Matthew Goldenberg, who is an expert in evaluation and treatment of mental health disorders and is an addiction specialist in Santa Monica, California. He is double board certified in psychiatry and addiction psychiatry. Dr. Goldenberg is the founder of Professional Health Solutions. And he is also an assistant professor of psychiatry at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California and his private practices in Santa Monica. Dr. Goldenberg, we've talked a lot about addiction. What about the mental health um, issues and disorders that you see among physicians? What, what seems to be the most prevalent? Yeah, that's a great question. So overall, the, the healthcare providers have similar rates, kind of the same way that in similar rates of addiction, similar rates of things like depression, uh, anxiety, even PTSD as a general population does. There's less uh, schizophrenia that you would see in, in physicians out of the healthcare providers because um, for those who know about schizophrenia, you oftentimes will have um, kind of what we would call like a break in your early 20s where you lose touch with reality. And so it's really difficult to continue your education in a way that you'd, you would be able to continue on with, with college and medical school and uh, residency and all those things, but it may be surprising that physicians actually do have the same rates as common things like depression, anxiety, um, and other disorders that the general population suffers from as well. So um, what's the treatment for mental illness and substance use disorders for physicians, um, and, and how is that different from the general population? Yeah, that's an important piece, and I think it's really, it can be surprising when we have a physician come in and, and they've had family members go in for treatment. Um, for those in the general public, it oftentimes, and we talked a little bit about how the insurance companies get involved in these kinds of decisions, but oftentimes what is paid for by, by people's insurance is, is the lowest level of care first, and then if you fail that level of treatment, you kind of work your way up. So you might start with an outpatient counselor, and if, let's say, you're uh, addicted to heroin and you're in the general public, you have a relapse, you go up to intensive outpatient, which is groups or individual therapy a few times a week, and maybe that doesn't work out, and then you work your way up to a partial hospitalization, which means you're in a hospital setting but living at home, and then you might work your way up to a, a, a hospital setting or residential setting if things are really not going well. For physicians, and the same is true for pilots and other healthcare providers, they're in safety-sensitive roles, which means we really can't afford to wait around and see if, if the lowest level of care will, will be sufficient or not, because in the interval, they either would have to take time off of work and, and be away from their, you know, their patients and their families and things like that to, to make sure they're safe, um, or we would be putting the, the public at unnecessary risk. So the general, the general kind of path is you get a really thorough evaluation. There's different treatment providers around the country in different treatment settings um, that provide an evaluation, which might be a psychiatrist, a psychologist, some, some testing to really understand what is going on here. Is this a mental health problem? Is this substance abuse? Is this just aging in some of our older doctors? You know, it may look like substance abuse where it could just be an early dementia coming on. And then the standard of care is, is 60 to 90 days of residential treatment 
for physicians or other healthcare providers that have moderate to severe substance use disorders. So that's the surprising part is that they might have seen a family member who had a heroin issue and they just went to a counselor or they went to a program for 30 days but lived at home. But that's usually not the standard of care for doctors or other healthcare providers because of their safety-sensitive role and how important it is to make sure this is treated the first time and that they stick in good recovery. And there's really great data out there, which hopefully we'll get to talk about, showing that this really works for doctors and it works much better um, than just you know, giving them the lowest level of care. So how does that get paid for? Is it the Board of Medicine? Is it their own insurance? Because uh, most insurance companies won't provide that level of inpatient. Yeah. You know, sometimes if we do really good documentation and they have good insurance, their insurance companies will pay for some of it, but oftentimes you're right. It is, it is not something that would, be care, that would be paid for in full. And so a lot of times it'll either be if they come from a, a practice that maybe will pay for part of their care if they work for a group practice, or oftentimes it's the physicians having to pay for this out of pocket um, themselves. But when you look at the issues that go into not treating a substance abuse issue. So getting a DWI and the legal, I mean, in most states, it's now like $20,000 or something like that for getting your first DUI. When you look at the court costs and the lawyer costs and the fines and penalties and the classes you have to take, um, and that's even more so, it's exponentially higher for a physician because you may have to, you may end up losing your license or, or things like that. Um, so the way we always look at it is it is much less expensive to get this addressed up front and get it addressed appropriately than it would be to sweep it under the rug and wait until you have to get it addressed later when there's a patient safety issue or a DUI uh, or you show up to work impaired and you get pulled off the job. So um, it is difficult, though. You, the uh, physicians and other healthcare providers have to have you know, some resources saved up or, or at their disposal to be able to pay for um, care that their insurance company may deem unnecessary or that they just don't want to cover. So that, that, that can be tricky. You had mentioned the prevalence rates for um, compliance and, and ongoing recovery. Can you speak a little bit about that and why is it higher? Yeah, that's, that's great. So what we look at in physicians, it's really in other healthcare providers, it's a three-part process. So we talked about the evaluation, which helps to determine what needs to be treated and what's going on. Next is thorough treatment in, in many cases in a residential setting. And then the last piece is ongoing monitoring. And that's important because that's what significantly improves the outcomes in addition to the higher level of care that a healthcare provider would get. So monitoring involves random drug testing. It might mean a workplace monitor. It might mean accountability of the groups that the person is going to. So if they're going to AA or NA meetings, that there's a log kept. And it's usually either the the, the board itself or a physician health or a uh, employee assistance program that would monitor those kinds of things. So there's a contract sign that basically says if there's a positive drug test or if there's a problem, you will go back into treatment or some other contingency. So that level of accountability keeps the recovery of the healthcare professional front and center for them. So it doesn't allow for any sort of error. If, if somebody ends up relapsing, it's caught on a drug test and they're immediately back in treatment and taken out of the, taken off the job so that they can get the treatment they need. The data shows about a quarter of, for physicians specifically, they looked at um, what we call physician health program data. So from these physician health programs across different states that doctors had gone to and been monitored by, um, and this data came from the 2000s, I think it's nine years worth, about a quarter of the doctors had one relapse 
sometime in the five years of monitoring, and that's the standard of care is five years of monitoring. Um, and the majority of those doctors did not relapse again. And about 85 to 95% of the doctors in all these different states, and it's 500, 600 doctors, were able to return to work and were, were able to return to work safely. Some of the doctors ended up retiring or just couldn't get a handle on their addictions, but the vast majority, 85 to 95% did and did so safely. And the, when you compare that to the general population, that it's night and day. In the general population, more than 50% of individuals will relapse after their treatment ends. So they go to rehab for 30 days and more than 50% relapse in the first couple of weeks. When you look at the uh, physicians, it's um, you know, significantly higher numbers are, are doing well and, and are able to return to work. It makes you wonder why everybody doesn't have that standard of care if, if it's so effective. You know, yeah, no, I think in an ideal world we would, and we try to replicate yeah. that from our, you know, in, in the practice I have, I try to, for even my non-physicians, non-healthcare providers, I recommend monitoring. I recommend going to AA meetings and NA meetings and having a sponsor. All of those kind of the recipe or the ingredients that we, we know works well for the healthcare providers, I try to recommend that to the general public population, but there's not as much um, leverage, I would say, because with a doctor, you have your license on the line. If you're an accountant, it's really your own accountability that, that's going to keep you, um, you know, sober and in, in good recovery. Uh, but I agree with you. If we could get that level of care for everybody, we would have a lot less addiction in our country than we currently do. So the good news is, is that once um, a physician is identified, uh, the, the treatment protocols are well established and very successful. Yes, that's that's basically the case. The earlier the intervention, the better. Physicians tend to come in later in their disease course because of all of the stigma and fear of losing their careers. They worry that if they ask for help, they won't be able to get a license. They won't be able to get credentialed in the hospital. They won't be able to get malpractice coverage. So oftentimes they come in more sick than you would see in the general population because they're more scared to, to get treatment. But the, the evidence from the beginning of them looking into this you know, 40, 50 years ago shows that physicians do really well um, once they're in recovery. And that's not just being sober, but that's actually living a high-quality life and replacing the need for substances, which may be for coping or escaping or rewarding with healthy behaviors. And that's the, that's the important piece uh, that makes you in good recovery is you're not just sober, but you're actually living a happy and fulfilling life uh, without drugs and alcohol. And so that's what the evidence shows for physicians they can do if they get, if they get the treatment that's available. Do physicians need to be in specific residential treatment programs just for physicians, or can they be commingled with other folks that have similar uh, substance use disorders? So they can be commingled, but it's not the best practice. So we always recommend that physicians are in programs with other physicians. And there's a couple of reasons. One, you know, I think that there's just, there's a difference in the level of accountability that a physician has over somebody who doesn't have that safety sensitive role. And so I think that it needs to be addressed um, in, in the treatment in, in that uh, they have groups and they have individual therapies surrounding return to work issues, licensing issues, um, you know, what, what impact will this have on your DEA license, things that would be irrelevant to somebody who doesn't have those kinds of safety-sensitive roles. And so you can, if you're a physician or other healthcare provider listening, you can get treatment. It's better than not getting treatment in, in a 
in a you know residential setting or outpatient treatment setting without other healthcare providers. But when we do these evaluations and we see a doctor or a dentist or other healthcare provider who needs treatment, we always recommend it to be in a program with other doctors because the evidence shows they do better. And then when they return to work, we they continue to go to either uh, a Caduceus meeting, which is an AA meeting specifically uh, for healthcare providers, or a physician monitoring group, which is a, a group of other doctors who are in recovery and having drug testing so that they can talk about the kinds of issues that the general population doesn't have to face. And so um, best practice and, and the best outcomes come when they're in programs uh, getting treatment with other healthcare providers. And we'll take a short break and be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you find yourself caring for people in multiple generations? Are you exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed? Instead of spending hours searching for resources and information, Dr. Merrill and her guests will provide you with practical, everyday information and solutions to help make your life easier. Tune into Caught Between Generations, Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back. Our, our guest today is Dr. Matthew Goldenberg, who is the founder of Professional Health Solutions, and he's also an assistant professor of psychiatry at 
Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, and he has a private practice in Santa Monica. Um, Before we went to break, we were talking a bit about um, some of the uh, mental health issues that physicians face, and I'm I'm just wondering, you know, as a profession, physicians are exposed to a lot of trauma. They're exposed to a lot of of death, Um, and I'm wondering how that affects their, uh, whether it's compartmentalizing their emotions or just learning how to detach to the point where they become numb or burn out. Um, what, is, what is your experience with that with physicians? Yeah, I think that that's an important piece of sometimes what, what causes some of the issues that we talked about today is that healthcare providers do deal with um, grief and suffering and death on a daily basis. And depending on which specialty you're in, if you work in an emergency room or you work in the intensive care units, it may be even more so, I mean, it may be on an hourly basis that you see people coming in and, and in extreme suffering and, de- and, and even in, in dying. Uh, so we know that physicians and other health care providers suffer from emotional exhaustion or compassion fatigue, basically, where there's only just so much suffering that you can deal with. Uh, what's a, a more concern, and I think it's been out in the, the media and especially for physicians and other health care providers, it's been in the front and center is burnout. And I think that that's a big piece of it is that we have poor work-life balance in many cases. We're barely taking care of ourselves, and then we deal with very stressful and, and emotionally charged situations. And some of our best physicians and other healthcare providers, those who care the most, uh, who are more perfectionistic, are oftentimes most vulnerable from something like burnout because of the, the piece that they don't, they're not able to be as resilient and bounce back since they have these expectations uh, which may be impractical that they won't lose patients or they won't have any bad outcomes. Um, and so I think that that, that piece of, of the emotional suffering of our patients is an important um, kind of foundation for the care that we provide for doctors. We need to make sure that we're not only treating doctors when they have a mental health or substance abuse issue, but we're providing the kinds of resiliency training and prevention training uh, and resources they need to continue to do well in a, in a culture and in a uh, uh, you know, practice of medicine that is a very, you know, it's very trying and very difficult in many cases. Um, so, is what is is the suicide rate for physicians? Is it the same as the general population? No, it's actually much higher, and that's surprising. So, the one of the, the things I talk about in the talks I give to other doctors is the only cause of death that is higher in physicians then the general population is actually suicide. Every other cause of death is lower. Physicians are generally healthy. In male physicians, it's about 70% higher than the general population, the suicide risk. And in female physicians, it's 100 to 240% higher um, than it is in the general population. And some of that, they think, is, is, is a struggle with work-life balance because female physicians not only have to deal with their home life and their uh, career life, but they also have to deal with um, you know, balancing motherhood and the demands of raising a family. And uh, even though in modern families that may be more uh, evenly dispersed between uh, the husband and the wife, it's still, I can say from my personal experience, we have a 14-month-old, um, you know, there's certain things that a mom can provide, especially in the middle of the night with a crying baby that a, you know, the, the father just cannot. And so I think that that contributes, all those different roles and those pulls contribute to that huge suicide risk in female physicians. I think our takeaway from our uh, hour together is that um, physicians, when when you intervene early, um, have uh, 
very good outcomes for um, recovery from mental illness and substance use disorders, and that there are very effective treatments for physicians and monitoring programs. If people want to get a hold of you to learn more or maybe they just need to talk to you because they're having a problem, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm, I'd be happy to provide my contact info. So my office phone number, if somebody wanted to talk or have a consultation, is 424-276-0777. I also can provide my email. Um, it's info, or I'll just give my, my, my Gmail account. It's easier for them to find me that way. It's docgoldenberg at gmail.com, D-O-C-G-O-L-D-E-N-B-E-R-G at gmail.com. And then I have a lot of free information available and links on my website. Um, it's www.professionalshealthsolutions.com, and you can contact me through there. But it, it provides information uh, that I think is relevant to not only healthcare professionals but other professionals as well. Because as I mentioned, if we can give the same types of treatment to everybody, you know, this if, if thorough evaluations, quality treatment, and ongoing monitoring, it, it will benefit you know, people from a wide variety of professions, not just healthcare providers. So I'm, I'm always open to discuss. And, and if you're in the LA area, um, I, you know, I'd be happy to discuss um, openings in my private practice. Are state boards of licensing resources for physicians or are they more of the, um, I don't know, like the, the chemical police? I mean, are they yeah, the, I, the state boards to? are there to, to, in some ways, protect the public. Most states have what they call either diversion programs or employee assistance programs or physician health programs. And so those are places where physicians or other health care providers can go and reach out for help. And in most cases, there's a separation from the board, which, which is there to protect the health care provider. So if you go and say, I'm depressed, can you help me get treatment? They should be able to provide referrals and ongoing monitoring. And as long as you do everything to stay on a path to wellness, then you would never be reported to the board. Same thing with substance abuse. If you said, I think I have a problem with alcohol, I need help, you could go to the physician health program in your state and say, I'd like some, some resources. And as long as you're doing well and not having positive drug screens or you know, you're, you're, you're showing up and doing what you're supposed to do, it, it doesn't get reported in, in a judicial way to the board. Um, there's also, you know, you can look up different treatment programs around the country that specialize in physician health or healthcare provider health, and they should be able to provide resources as well. Um, but it can be difficult. You know, you have to, you may have to do some homework if you live in a more rural area to find somebody um, to help. But they do have physician health programs for doctors in almost every state now. So there's a resource out there if, if you need help. Are there any groups of uh, mutual support for physicians in recovery? There are. That's a great question. So there's Caduceus meetings. Uh, those are local AA meetings uh, that you can go to if you're in recovery, and anyone can join those. You could Google it um, and find a you know AA meeting for healthcare providers or physicians in your area or Google Caduceus meeting. There's also oftentimes monitoring groups. Uh, so if you're in recovery and you're being drug tested, you can go to a group that's a supportive group for other physicians and healthcare providers. It's a little bit more structured. You have to join those types of groups. Um, but the, the AA meetings, so the Caduceus meetings, are a great resource for other doctors. And you may find you'll be surprised at, at how many people in the community have struggled with this like you have, or if you're in that boat of de- deciding if you want treatment or not or you need help. 
Um, you can also go to Al-Anon meetings if you're a family member. So if you have a family member who's a physician and they're struggling and you don't know what to do, Al-Anon meetings are a great resource for family and friends of people who are in recovery. I guess just just kind of quickly, um, it kind of brings up oftentimes the physician is the person who's supporting the family member who has a mental illness or a substance use disorder. And um, I'm thinking that might lead to burnout and some compassion fatigue as well if you're dealing with it at home and you're, that's the work you're in as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think that that would set somebody up for extreme difficulty because if you imagine that they're providing care and, and support and um, emotional and physical help just all day at work and then you come home and you're also a caregiver, it can be extremely difficult. Physicians tend to be in that caregiver role as a, as a baseline, you know, because at, at work that's what we do. So I think it's important to, for that physician who might be in that situation to really evaluate how are they doing and figure out where their barometer is because physicians are human. Other healthcare providers are just human. And so if you're burning the candle at both ends, that's when you end up running into trouble. So it's okay to say you need help, that you can't, you know, balance all of these things, especially if you have an ill family member at home that you're also caring for. It's one of the more difficult things for physicians to do to reach out for help, but it's the, the most important thing. You know, and it may just be getting a home health care nurse for that family member so that it takes a little bit of um, stress off of you at home. Well, thank you so much for sharing this hour with us, Dr. Goldenberg, and for reminding us all that physicians are human too, and it's just as hard for them to reach out for help as it is for a lot of other folks as well, and that there are effective treatments when they do. So thank you for sharing this hour with us. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Have a good week, everyone. Hope uh, spring comes to you wherever you are. Thank you. It's warm out here in Santa Monica. Have a good week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.